Recovery Elevator, episode 160. And I'd say it was really years of just painful drinking, knowing I needed to stop and not being able to. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for 1,264 days. On today's podcast, we've got Carrie. At the time of the recording, she's been sober for 12 days. She's from Los Angeles. She's married, has two children, and has four dogs. And before we get any further, let's hear from my favorite resource in recovery, Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it was painful. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group 24 hours a day. There, you can get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For $14 a month, you can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend online meetups, attend in-person Cafe R meetups, and participate in book club. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get started. This is the fourth installment of the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, where we cover one step in each episode. The Recovery Elevator podcast is not affiliated in any way with Alcoholics Anonymous, but I've heard from listeners they have a general interest and are curious about the steps. So I started covering these steps about two months ago, sprinkling them in every four or five episodes or so. Podcast episode 142 was step one. 146 was step two, and I covered step three in episode 152. All right, so here it is. Let's talk about step four of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And hang on, let me check something real quick. I can see the download listens. We had, oh shoot, they are, we had 3,612, and now we're down to zero. Wow, people really don't want anything to do with the fourth step. I'm kidding. I can't see how many people are listening at any given time, but people run for the hills when they hear the word fourth step, and I was the same way. So, the fourth step. Here it is. Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Or as Russell Brand describes the fourth step in his book, Recovery, write down all the things that are fucking you up, or have ever fucked you up, and don't lie or leave anything out. If you've been listening to the Recovery Elevator podcast for a while, you've probably heard me say that getting sober is all about doing things you don't want to do. And this one here is like the Taj Mahal of things you don't want to do. That analogy didn't make much sense, but you get the point. Most people avoid step four like they owe it money. A lot of money. A guy I met while volunteering at Hope Rehab in Thailand described his recovery up until that point as the three-step waltz. Step one, step two, step three, then relapse. A lot of people have no problem doing the first three steps. Bring on step four. Uh, That's okay. I'm done. For most people, this step, which arguably can be the most important step, can take weeks, months, even years to finish. But there's a ratio of about 10 to 1 I've noticed. People, including myself, we tend to spend about 10 hours of thinking about step four for every one hour of actually doing the action it takes to do step four. So as soon as my pen hit the paper, it took me about three to four months to complete and then two one-hour sessions to read it to my sponsor. So step four of AA's 12-step program of recovery is infamously the scary one, probably because it's a crucial step towards effective and lasting recovery. Since the overall philosophy of Alcoholics Anonymous is that alcoholism is just a symptom of a spiritual disease, the real problem is in character flaws that need to be faced and when possible overcome. How to do this? Well, this requires a searching, bear-it-all revelation-inducing inventory that will become the blueprint for your success. What's the biggest requirement for this action step? Honesty. You have to be honest. So you and the people around you will benefit from this crucial step. In case you didn't know, keeping secrets is threatening to our recovery. And we have all had secrets that nearly killed us. So our secrets, both in and out of sobriety, is what is keeping us from finding the true emotional sobriety that we seek. 
While working on our inventories in step four, we get a new perspective on the bigger picture, on patterns, selfishness, our responsibility in situations, and in this process, we are building up an accurate view of ourselves with true self-worth as the reward. We begin to start addressing the self-loathing, which is huge. So let's break down this step into more digestible fragments. Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Okay, let's look at the first word made which is the past tense of the verb make, to do, or to make, this word requires action. So this is an action step, a step that takes significantly more action than the previous three steps combined. You will fill up notebooks, empty pens of their ink reserves, and spend hours thinking of everyone you've met in your entire life. If you've had more than just slight interaction with a person, go ahead and write it down. Have you ever had issues with the weather, government parties, ideologies, perhaps hummingbirds, the color magenta? We'll put it all down. Now let's look at the word a searching, made a searching. So the average person has three blind spots or parts about them that aren't quite as perfect as they think they are. It is possible to uncover these, but you need to search internally for them. And the search will take time. We have the word fearless. Doing this intense soul searching will invoke uncomfortable feelings and emotions. I can guarantee you this. Everyone, including myself, had or has fear about the four step. But here's an opportunity for us to start making decisions not based out of fear, but out of the desire to improve yourself. I don't know about you, but when my drinking was at its worst, nearly every decision I made was based out of fear. And that's no bueno. Made a searching and fearless moral inventory. This moral inventory needs to be honest, unbiased, thorough, and complete. What to include in this inventory? Basically, you're writing down every single thing that has caused you to feel disturbed, created a negative emotion, a mental glitch, or event you feel has caused you to drink. You might be saying to yourself, okay, I started to drink from age 15 on. Um, I need to think of all the people, people, places, interactions from age 15 on. No, we're actually going to go back way before we took that first drink. Warning. Again, this can be painful and not fun, but at the same time, this can be validating temporarily. So I wrote down everything wrong that a childhood friend named Jason did to me as a kid. And after the list was compiled, I said to myself, wow, Paul, you're totally right. It's clear based upon my bullet list that Jason is a total dick. Spoiler alert, read one person's entry and you can blatantly see their flaws. Read 55 people's entries in a row, and you'll realize you're the one that's flawed. This step is all about bringing unconscious behavior to light. So Miss Newberry from the third grade, who made you go see the principal because she thought you sang out of tune on purpose in the school's Christmas assembly, add that to the list. In fact, this is an actual line from my fourth step. Did it rain on your 12th birthday, causing you to move your birthday party from a sweet outdoor water park to an indoor library? Yeah, add Mother Nature to the list. Did your older brother set the school record for pole vault while you were getting second to last place in shot put? Add that one to the list. North Korea being North Korea? Yep, add it to the list. Add all your friends, family members, all past girlfriends, spouses, current girlfriends, current spouses, etc. to this list. Basically, through step four, we gradually learn to accept the world as it is and we realize that only we can change, not change others. So how to do step four? Ideally, you're doing this step with the same mentor, sponsor, who walked you through the previous three steps. So here's how to do it. You're going to create four Excel columns or four columns in a notebook. The first column is going to be titled, I resent. And let's just go for my brother on this one. I will put, I resent. In that column, I'll put my brother. Number two, the second column is going to say, because. Underneath, I'm going to write why I resent my brother. This could be one thing that he set the bar too high to achieve. Actually, there's a pretty good pun involved in this one. He was really good at high jump and pole vault. Those are bars that I could never physically jump over. I had a tremendous resentment against my brother. He was athletically gifted. So I resent my brother because the following things. And in the third column, you're going to write, this affects my. Now there's seven things that this can affect. And we're going to use abbreviations for these because it can affect more than one thing. The first one is pride. What I think about me. The second one is self-esteem, what I think about myself. The third one is, does it affect my personal relations? This is basically the narrative I give others. The fourth one is sexual relations, basically pertaining to sex. Next one is ambitions, and this is what I want in life, my overall vision for my perfect self. 
Does it affect my security? What I need to survive. So the word there is security. And the last one is, does it affect my finances? This would be money, this would be job, and how it affects your personal well-being in regards to finances. So again, these seven are pride, and we'll just use the word P, then self-esteem, S-E, personal relations, P-R, sexual relations, S-R, ambitions, A, security, S, finances, F. So in this third column, you're going to say, this affects my for example, I resent my brother because he can jump way higher than I can. And this affects my, my pride, P. It affects my self-esteem, S-E. My personal relationships, P-R. Sexual relations, I probably would have had way more girlfriends in high school if I could jump as high as my brother, S-R. E, ambitions, not really. F, security, not really. And G, finances, not so much. So you can have all seven. This affects my all seven there. But for me, it would just be P comma SE comma SR comma perhaps SR, but for sure the first three. And then the last column is my part or where was I to blame? And since this is a 12 step exercise, I recommend reading the second paragraph on page 67 before starting. Also check out pages 42 to 54 in the big book and pages 58 to 71. So what was my part in me resenting my brother for being so good at jumping over high things? Well, number one, I don't recall I ever asked him, hey, Mark, hey, older brother, can you show me how to jump over high things? I was always comparing myself to other people. I wasn't happy with my own athletic achievements. I wasn't realizing that I was a sophomore and he was a senior. I was upset that things seemed to come easy for my brother. But looking back, I recall he stayed late after every track practice, jumping over high shit. Yeah, that's something I didn't do. So what do we want to accomplish with this step? Like I mentioned, we all have blind spots, and this is a great way for us to recognize them. We are looking to find patterns and expose them. We are discovering ways the unconscious mind has been running our life into a ditch. Personal experience with step four, it took me months. And it took me two hours to read everything I wrote in my step four notebook to my sponsor. It was a magical experience. While I was reading everything from start to finish, light bulbs were going off in my brain left and right. I found out a big underlying issue for me was jealousy. It became blatantly clear that I was jealous of those people who on the outside looking in, things seemed to come easy for them. I was jealous towards those who came from families with money. I was jealous of those who seemed to be more gifted athletically than I was. And I was especially jealous towards those who were able to have more success than I was with the opposite success simply by having good looks. Again, this is all perceived. But after completing the my part of the equation, a lot of these problems were all internal. Like most personal development tasks, you get out of this exercise what you put into it. And my recommendation is to approach the fourth step like you would sobriety. One day at a time, one entry at a time. Just start with one name. Start writing, filling out the columns, and before you know it, you're going to have a full notebook. I hope you found this useful. Enough out of me. Let's hear from Carrie. Carrie, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing, Paul? Hey, I'm doing great, Carrie. Thanks for asking. Carrie, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? My app on my phone tells me I've been sober uh, for 12 days. Congratulations. That's 12 huge full days. There was a time in my recovery when I would have killed to get 12 days. So nice job on that. Thank you. I'm happy, I'm happy about that 12 days. Yeah, there we go. And before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, perhaps your age, what you do for a living. Do you have any pets? What do you like to do for fun? Do you have a family and stuff like that? Okay, well, I live in Los Angeles, California. I've lived here for 11 years, but I grew up military. So I actually have lived all over the States and overseas growing up. I'm 47. I have two kids, uh, Lake and Charlie, 10-year-old and a 7-year-old. I'm married, and I have four dogs. I'm a big dog fan. They're all rescues. And until recently, we had a corn snake, which was a rescue corn snake that belonged to my daughter. And for fun, I love reading. I love going to the movies. I am a huge, huge traveler. I love to go on road trips by myself or with the family. I love checking out hotels in different cities. Yeah, that's and th those are my hobbies. Oh, and hanging out in bookstores. If I have free time, I like to just go into a bookstore and, and, and nose around through the bookstore. That is so cool that you have four dogs 
and I, I mm -hmm. want to talk about those dogs later, but uh, I have this strange passion and always had pa a passion for snakes. <laughs> I'm sure I'm going to lose a percentage of my listenership right there, but uh, I, so much of a passion that I know that Montana has 11 native snake species to this state. Only one of them is poisonous. That's the rattlesnake. And I found myself last uh -huh. year saying, you know, I've never found... I've never found a rubber boa, and I just went snake hunting. <laughs> and I'm terrified to get bitten by a snake, but for some reason, when I was a kid, like I always, I always wanted to get a snake, and the corn snake was my first one. So, uh, and it escaped three times out of the cage. Does your corn snake escape? Those things are escape artists. Paul, our snake has escaped probably as many days as I've been sober. I think it's like twelve, <laughs> How fifteen do they do times. <laughs> my uh, house cleaner was over one day and took a photo for me. She's terrified of the corn snake who's an albino corn snake so she was extra kind of a little bit creepy snaky looking of her trying to push up see they must be they're extremely strong i guess because they're one big muscle but her trying to lift the lid up so it was kind of her almost standing on her tail pushing the lid off we had a faulty lid and that's how she kept escaping i finally got set up with the corn snake because nobody else was taking care of her and a friend of mine that used to work at that, I work at an animal shelter, a friend of mine that used to work there and is also a big animal lover was thrilled to take her on. So now the snake is living with another dog family and, you know, not escaping, hopefully. That's, that's the narrative that I'm going to bundle it up when I get a snake. Like, you know, this is just a, this is a, this is a rescue rosy red tailed boa from the Amazon region. I'm um, just, uh, yeah. I, I had to rescue it and uh, I'm doing the right thing. So. If you, you know, it's hard to find a home up here. It's not native, native land for it. So, well, since, uh, since 2.1% of people actually like snakes, let's move on to a different topic. Yeah, I know. No, everybody hated the snake. Her brother, I think the seven-year-old brother would love the snake. No, everybody was like, thank God. We had the snake for three years. It oh was just, my gosh. You know, yeah. Anyways, I take great care. Anyways, we got, I got dogs, I got kids. I'm like, I can't take on a corn snake as well. So. And the corn snake is the fourth my... longest snake in the U.S. besides the bull snake, a.k.a. the gopher snake found in oh, the southwestern no. region of the United States. Oh, actually, the most of the western. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. I'll just I'll I could stop. tell you the place. Okay. No, and I could going. tell you the place she was found were really creepy, too. Like, she was wrapped up in a Harry Potter robe for days. It was, you know, when she would escape, she would just kind of end up in the most unlikely scary places to end up finding a snake when you weren't looking for one. That, that's so. too funny. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's okay. chat about some let's alcohol. What do, you, what do you say? Let's do it. All right. So, Carrie, you're 47 years young. When mm -hmm. did you perhaps start to realize that, hmm, maybe I don't drink normally? I would say it happened in my 40s. I started drinking at a young age, like partying in high school, probably at 15, and did it through college, and then kind of became what I thought was a normal drinker, even though I, I drank every day, which actually you posted a study on Facebook recently that was talking about the percentage of people that drink X amount, and I was surprised to see that even when I thought I was a normal drinker, I was drinking as, you know, more than 80% of the population, I would have definitely a glass or two glasses of wine every day. And I found like, well, I'm an adult now. This is normal. It was never a person that would be at a party late or the last one at the party. My friends always knew me as the person that went home first. But I still drank steadily two glasses of wine at the end of every day just to wind down. After having my first child, you know, you have to be sober for those nine months, which I found really, really difficult and started drinking right away, right after she was born. Trying to drink lower alcohol wine, like, um, mm -hmm. what is it called? A like a sparkler or a, is that Portuguese? I mean, that wine from Portugal. Vino Verde, which is 6%. So I was like, this is fine. I'm drinking less alcohol content. But after she was born and the stress of being a mother and not drinking out socially, I just found I was starting to drink more in my home at the end of the day to cope with mm -hmm. feelings of, boredom and frustration and after my second child was born it was 40 that's when my drinking really took an uptick and then I think I didn't mention in my intro but I, I work in the field of animal welfare and animal rescue and I run a, an organization but when I first started getting into that world it's a highly stressful emotional world and I started drinking more I was up late at night, like working on, you know, helping network pets and shelters or, and it was very stressful. Plus being a mom and I just started drinking to the point of getting drunk every night. And I had my drinking spot, which was standing in the kitchen over my computer. So I would just drink more and be online more. And I started thinking, this is 
this is really not healthy. And I think that probably happened. I started doing the dance with Am I an Alcoholic? Am I not? Probably about four or five. I'd, I'd say five years ago. So five years ago, you, the mm-hmm. dialogue went went in your head. You're like, hey, you know, maybe this isn't normal. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like when you had Blake, um, you said mm-hmm. it was. You found it was hard to not drink for that nine month period. Was was there any internal dialogue there, narrative saying, hmm, this could be a red flag, or was it just like, uh, I really want to drink. You didn't really wasn't mm-hmm. able to like digest what it, what it was. Was I have a drinking problem or not? What, did you think any more of it that that moment when you had Blake ten years ago? that it was more than just like, oh, this is kind of hard to stay sober. Yeah, I didn't. I think then since I thought I was such a normal drinker and just loved wine, that I'm looking at it now, I'm like, that should have been a red flag because, you know, I I think, oh, well, it's Thanksgiving and I'm, you know, even my doctor said it's okay. You can have one glass of wine. But having that one glass of wine, my thought process was that's not even worth it. Like, that's upsetting that I can just have one glass of wine. Like it wasn't, I wasn't thinking, Oh, I'm just going to enjoy this beautiful glass of wine with the meal. I was more upset that one glass of wine wasn't going to lead to more glasses of wine and I wasn't going to be able to get buzzed. And that should have been a red flag. (laughs) Like I, it wasn't like, I just want the taste of red wine. That's great. I can have one or two during my pregnancy. I was upset that, but it had to end at just one and it made it not worth it. Yeah, that's a solid you might be an alcoholic if line is is if you're told you can have just one glass of wine or one drink and you say it's not worth it. I know a lot of people can yeah. relate to that. Where if I was in situations where I knew I had to drive and I could only have one or two, I just wouldn't start because the thought of stopping midstream is just so painful. Yeah. Yeah, and even being pregnant when your body, everybody else is like, oh, my body didn't want wine. It was, which I, I was, I would have drank it. I would have gladly drank it to the point of getting buzzed or drunk if it was okay. And it sounds yeah. like you, you've already mentioned a, a rule you put in place. Uh, you know, a method to control your drinking is you bought a six percent wine from Portugal. What were some other rules you put in place? You no know, drinking before five, only on the weekends, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did all of that. Once I had realized, okay, this is a problem, I, because I would mention it to my therapist, and he said, oh, well, just just have, it's okay to have like a glass at night with dinner if it relaxes you, and then just end at that. And I had him and my doctor tell me stuff like that, or just have it on the Saturday and Sunday. That would drive me crazy because I would think, leave the office feeling good, like, oh, good, okay, well, there is a way to do it. And then it's like, that's, if it'd be that night and I'd have one glass, you know, once you have one glass, it's crazy. I'm not going to stop and just enjoy that one glass. So I would try to put their rules into place, which never, I don't think, I think the rule just lasted in my head and then I could never accomplish it in, you know, real life. But I did do, I went to like a moderation management website and I would try this thing of having a glass of wine and then having a full glass of water after and then having another glass of wine and trying to put glasses of water in between think that'd work for one you know one glass of wine i do the one glass of water and then it would just be screw that and just be all all wine no water i was not good at putting rules into place i would try but i really never was able to make any rules work for me and that added to my shame because i would have friends say like oh yeah no i just drink on um, friday and saturday and my husband and i don't open wine at home anymore we just have it if we go out I knew those rules. I should have them, but I, I never had the willpower to put them into play. So that's just kind of, for me, fueled. So when did you start to in, internalize your perception of neighbors and friends and family when you say, you know, just have a couple on a weekend, stop at this? When did you start to digest that and say, wait, maybe, maybe I'm not drinking like a normal person? I think it would happen with one friend and I who we would talk about loving rosé so much and she would say the same thing, like, I got to cut down on the rosé. And I remember showing up, our daughters took tennis together, and I remember showing up at the tennis club after a night of drinking, like I always did, by myself, after the kids are, you know, while they're up until they're past, waking up so hungover, driving my daughter to the tennis club and opening the door to let her, and just feeling like, I'm going to throw, I'm, I'm going to throw up. I'm hmm. so sick or possibly still drunk. And that friend and talking, uh, not admitting to her that I was so hungover, but hearing her say, like, oh, yeah, it's working out for us. It's, I feel better. I feel so much better just drinking on the weekends. And that's, I guess, it was, uh, it was like, okay, this, I have a bigger problem than they do. And, and when, when was that? 
That was, oh man, that was probably three years ago. Okay, gotcha. And when yeah. did you first make that attempt to, you know, to, to quit? I'd say about two and a half years ago, I took a go at it. I admitted, I, I talked to two of my friends that are sober, who both invited me to AA meetings. I didn't really know what I was doing, and I didn't go to too many AA meetings, and I don't think I was even didn't even realize there might be sobriety podcasts or books out there. I just kind of white knuckled it, as they say. And I think I made it 21 days and then went back to drinking. But then after that attempt of 21 days, my drinking became fraught because I knew I had a problem. So I would drink and feel bad about it or have spurts of being like, waking up with a terrible hangover and then being like, I'm going to do it again, maybe making it two days and then caving in again. And I'd say it was really years of just painful drinking, knowing I needed to stop and not being able to. I, I also, I got really fed up and I ended up Googling, as I've heard so many people on the podcast say, or on Cafe, like, am I an alcoholic? How can I stop? Just to put it in, like, in the Google search thing. How, you know, how can I stop drinking? And I ended up taking this course, online course with this woman, Kate B of the Sober School. And I did make it six weeks after that. And then I found Cafe RE and it's kind of been stumbles and starts since then. I had a good solid six months in, which I was really proud of. And then I had a relapse for about a week or so that went in and out over the holiday. Well, this journey looks different from everybody. Some interviewees I've interviewed, they are like, yeah, I quit on this date and it's, it's, I've never looked yeah. back. Right. I mm -hmm. wasn't that way. Relapse was a huge part of my story. And I went through a hamster wheel, which it sounds like you're kind of still in right now. And it's hard. It's, mm -hmm. it sucks, but you've got to look and, and I had to look at the, the actual progress that was being made. I, mean, I would keep beating myself up. Oh, I can't do this. But the data behind you, you had six months of sobriety. You made 21 days when you first started. You're at 12 days right now. When we met in Dallas, mm -hmm. you had you had a good chunk of time. Like there's there's a pendulum that's slowly shifting. Um, it's hard to see it in the day by day stuff, but you know, hopefully you're on the other side of it. Um, and in in that to your hamster wheel was was there a rock bottom moment, or is this something that you're just sick and tired of being sick and tired? I was sick and tired of being sick and tired, but there is one memory that always stands out to me. I, I went to a, um, it was the holidays, not this Christmas, but the Christmas before. And I went to a, there was a craft fair. And, you know, I live in LA, so it was like a history craft fair with stuff. <laughs> and I was like, my husband was home. I was going to go on my own. It was at the evening part of it. And I was like, oh, it's the holidays. I'm going to have a glass of champagne before I go. Did that, turned into two glasses of champagne. I went to the event. They had cocktails there for free. I had one of those. It was extremely strong whiskey cocktail. I walked around and remember being, being thinking like, I'm too drunk to even try any clothes on. I think I bought some crystals from a crystal lady who read my aura. I don't remember what she said. And on the way out, I thought, oh, this is a good idea. I should grab another cocktail. And got another cocktail and drove home and got home. And my daughter was still up and was sleeping in my room. And I just remember like being so sick that I had to feel my way along the wall to go to the bathroom to throw up or try to come back into bed and have to keep going back and forth and have her witness that. That was my rock bottom. I was mm. like, I'm a, I'm a mother and a professional and I'm in my forties. And this is just, this is, this is not okay to be living like this anymore. Well, good for you. You made a change. Most people don't even realize it and make a change. And it's, it, that's awesome. And, and with every relapse that I had, I, I, I learned something and I added something more to my repertoire of recovery tools and tricks, added more to my recovery portfolio. What are some of the things that you've been adding to your toolkit and what do you plan on adding to, to make this stick? Mm -hmm. One thing I've added this time around that's been really great is I wake up early every morning and I meditate 10 to 15 minutes. I have this book that I got from an AA meeting called Living Sober. And I think it might be a little old. I feel like a lot of the AA literature is a little older, right? From like the 40s or the 70s. But I really like this Living Sober. I just read a chapter every day or a section every day that kind of gives you tools. And I've been reaching out to, uh, I reached out to a sober friend I hadn't connected with in a while. I've just been reaching out to other people that are sober and asking for help. And this friend I had lunch with, you know, when I told her I 
had made it a little while and now was back on it again. She told me of a similar friend who actually had nine years of sobriety and relapsed and and she hooked us up and we're going to go to start going to a meeting on Saturday to go to an AA meeting together. AA hasn't been a regular part of my practice, but I feel like for me, knowing how I am, it'll be helpful for me to have that accountability of, of going to meetings and, and speaking up and having a place that I know I'm going to go and need to, you know, stay sober for that. So those are some of my tools, reading, meditation, reaching out. Um, I love listening to the podcast and I, and I also, you know, get on Cafe RV and yeah, try those, to hold myself responsible. Yeah, those yeah. are all spot on, but uh, the value bomb there, which you know, your intonation was the same across that whole sentence, but you're like, yeah, you know, I just reach out to some other people. That's huge, mm-hmm. Carrie. I mean, that's that's like the value bomb right there of the podcast because that phone, sending that email, sending that text, we've all heard like the 10,000 mm-hmm. pound phone. Like that's that's like the last thing that I started to do is, is I look back at 2014 and it wasn't until I started reaching out to a other people who are also sober, but B reaching out, asking for help. You said that, that is, that's huge. I asked for help from my parents, my brother, other people in the program, other sober friends was just this idea that was completely foreign to me because I didn't want to do it. And it's so hard to reach out for help. So I, I don't, I don't know. I don't, (laughs) I don't have the crystal balls that you purchased. I wish I did, but I think that this is that's this huge progress. I don't know. What do you think about yeah. it? Yeah. Oh no, I think it's great. It's made a it difference. It's it's and it was scary. I'll, also, somebody I, I met a yeah, it's scary. And like you said, it is a ten thousand pound phone. Like I'd much rather send a text to somebody. But it seems like with AA or whatever, it really helps. Either I've I've like I've met a friend for lunch. I've met another friend somewhere face to face or getting on the phone. Just making that extra effort has, yeah, it's been it's been big, and it's just good to feel like you have a team or a community or somebody else that's working, you know, that's either been there or close in line to where you are and, and wanted to do the same thing, head to the same place. As far as sobriety, it's it's been great because a lot of my friends are not sober and don't have drinking problems like me. Most likely, what they've said to me when I told people I'm not drinking is, oh, I didn't, you don't you don't drink that much. Like you're always the first one to leave the party. I've never seen you drunk. Like I'm not that, I wasn't that type of drunk. So having a community of people that, that do understand the different shades and varieties of how a drinker and an alcoholic works is, is nice. So what have you noticed in sobriety? Like, you know, for me, the carrot is still dangling in front of me. That's like, man, I, I want to keep going forward. But even with 12 days, you had six months before, there's some obvious benefits. And I look at sobriety as a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. But what benefits are you seeing with just 12 days of sobriety? Better energy in the more it's funny, like after three days of not drinking and waking up and meditating, I've been like, oh, I feel a little lighter. Like my body feels a little bit more open. I must have got a good night of sleep. I think it's a combo. It's not having alcohol in my system. I mean, it's huge. One of the main things that'll keep me from drinking, I mean, there's many, but the hangovers and how it just drags on your whole, whole day. So just having my brain be alive and aware is in the morning. And if the day goes bad or things are wrong or I'm sluggish. It's not because I drank too much the night before. It's just because that's life. That's one of the huge benefits. And just being aware and there for my kids at the end of the day. It still is annoying sometimes. They still run around and fight or, you know, sometimes it's wonderful, sometimes it's terrible. But just being completely aware for that and remembering, remembering even the details in the morning is is you know, those are all huge, huge reasons why sobriety is so important. That's and awesome that you're experiencing the benefits in, with, with 12 days. It's, and you can see, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel is it's not a freight train coming. It's, it's actually light at the end of the tunnel for a better life. And have you experienced, uh, for me, I think days 5 to 15 were the hardest and I'll get to why, but, and then I think from days 15 to 30, it gradually declines 30 to 60. It's more of a decline. Then after that, it kind of levels out, but it's the ism, the incredible short memory. I found that in my days five to 15, which I had a lot of, um, that's when mm-hmm. my addiction would start chirping to me in my own voice is the short memory would say, dude, you know, we've, we've made it seven days. We made it 10 days. It can't yeah. be that bad. Have you experienced that? And, and how are you overcoming that internal dialogue, that voice that's so convincing? Yep. 
I mean, the advice that works for me that I've heard from other people, but, and yeah, I got that. Even I got a glimpse of it last night. And now I, I feel like I know more. I'm like, that's my addiction talking. That's not real. That's, you know, it's not, I don't need that drink. I don't, but even like last night, my husband got home and had a hard day. He doesn't drink a lot. He's like, I'm going to have a glass. He always asks me now, is it okay? I'm going to have a glass of whiskey or whatever he has. But yeah, that it's funny how that voice is there. And it's just like almost like it comes out of nowhere like, oh, you could have a drink maybe with him. Why not? You had a hard day. But I think for me now, I just think of it like that's, it's, it's just a voice and just sit with it for a minute and let it pass. And then I just got myself busy with something else. Like for a minute, I did feel like, not that I was going to drink, but that feeling of like, ah, oh, fuck it, it's not fair. Well, what else can I do to, to kind of not be completely here? You know, I was like found my mind kind of jumping around to things. What can I do or what can I look at online or just something to occupy itself? And I really think meditation has helped with that, with putting a pause in things. Um, and I just kind of had to breathe with it for a minute. And I drank a glass of water and it was it was gone. Um, I love, I love I, how you're incorporating meditation in your, in, in, in your recovery because I think that's a scheduled time to filter and to digest the emotions. Because in the first 30 days, we're all of early recovery and all of sobriety. We're facing emotions at face value. We're not suppressing them with the alcohol. So it's cool. You're almost scheduling a time. You're like, hey, buddy. Right now, we're going to face emotions, and so they're not showing up at uh, you know like surprise times and later in the day, and that's awesome. And, and you, you mentioned your husband will ask you if if he can drink, which I think is so cool. <laughs> and I know some listeners wanted me to steer the conversation in this direction with relationships, with with your marriage, mm-hmm. with you know I've I've seen it go both ways, and I am again getting dating and marriage tips from me is like getting stock tips from Bernie Madoff. It's just. <laughs> like, I can't do it. Right. So I want to hear it from you, but you know, I, I've seen it go both ways. I've seen the spouse, you know, just be like, Hey, I, I right now we're at Carrie 1.5. Right. But I want to see Carrie 2.0. And then some spouses are like, you know, I, I want Carrie 1.0 and they're not on board with mm-hmm. you bettering your life. And they think they are, but it, it, it's a hard one. Yeah. And how has it been with your husband? He's been super supportive and wonderful. He did think I was drinking too. He's the only other one that thought I was drinking too much because nobody else saw it. So he was relieved and totally on board for me stopping drinking and also very compassionate. He's been helpful. I've had times where I've had to kind of tag out or like, you know what? The kids are really triggering me and driving me crazy. I feel like I want to drink. Can I just go? Can I hand off to you tonight? And I'm just going to go back in my room and, and read. And he will always say, absolutely. Go, 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 go now. And like I said, he doesn't drink like I used to, so there's not always alcohol in the house. And he'll always ask, like, is it okay? Do you mind if I have this? Or with dinner now when we go out, that used to be a big part of our going out as we liked getting a fancy cocktail or threes. And now he just, well, I get fake cocktail, virgin cocktails now, which a lot of restaurants will do. Mm-hmm. And he just won't drink. So he's been super, super supportive. And actually, when I relapsed over Christmas, it happened on Christmas night. I mean, bless his heart, that night he didn't say anything because I would have probably been mortified or defensive, you know, if he was like, hey, are you drinking? Why are you drinking? He waited until the next morning and was like, when we were having our coffee and just said, did you did you drink last night? And I was like, yeah, I, and I feel really bad and here's what happened and I should have known it was coming on. And he was just super compassionate and said, I'm sorry, you know, you, know, you must feel terrible. Just let me know next time. Just tell me next time and I'll help you out. So he's been a really, really wonderful, like a rock. God, what a cool guy. That's that's awesome to hear. And, and how important is it, do you think, to have – Perhaps someone you probably spend the most time with your husband, someone so mm-hmm. close to you, the closest person in your life, to be on your recovery team. It's it's great, and he's the main person on my recovery team, other than other people that are sober. So I mean, it's it's wonderful. It'd be hard if he was like, "Oh fuck this, I can't drink," or "Why can't I drink around you?" or you know, or if even he was like, "You don't you don't have a problem," it would be harder for me. So yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, and I've, I've found people that have been successful in sobriety, uh, and I found this personally, that my recovery team has to be comprised of people on both sides, normal drinkers mm-hmm. and people in recovery. Yeah. And, yeah, it's it's so cool. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, so when he asks me sometimes, can I drink, I'm like, it's okay. I'm like, funny enough, you drinking wine isn't what's going to like cause me to relapse. It's like a 
bag of other things that sometimes I don't even see coming. So, you know, I'm totally okay with that, with people drinking around me. I would hate it if he was, like, just tiptoeing all the time and, you know, not drinking because he's a regular drinker. Why should he have to change his whole, his whole thing because of my my alcoholism? Yeah, we, we are a sensitive lot. Occasionally that backfires. I was in Mexico one time, and we're sitting on the beach on a family vacation. I've got four months of sobriety. And yeah, like we had the catamaran dropped us off on this beach and, and everybody's drinking water. And I'm like, I'm in my head, the dialogue starting like, Oh, I'm such a burden. I'm such an inconvenience. And in their minds, they're like, wow, we're helping Paul. And I was like, hang on. I got up, bought three Coronas. Yeah. Bought three Coronas, brought them back. I'm like, here you go. So, yeah, you know, what's on your bucket list in sobriety? I'm, I'm sure you want to rescue all the snakes in the San Fernando Valley, which I'll come oh, out and help you with that. More, more snakes. Yeah, but what, uh, what's on your bucket list in sobriety? Listen, here's what, uh, I mean, I'm lucky enough. I've done a lot of my lifetime that I want. I'm kind of a, if I want to do something, I will figure out a way to do it. But the one thing I've been thinking is, I love traveling, as I said. For some reason, I've never been to Amsterdam. I'd love to go to Amsterdam and walk along around the canals and go to the museums there and see the architecture. I just, I love that type of city. I'm not, I know it's a pilot city. I'm not, that's not part of the appeal. I want to get up to enough days sober. I've got my sober tracker, you know, where it tells me how much money you're saving. So I like mapped out how much for a ticket and for one of the hotels that I like there and for spending money. You know, and I think I can get it all doing it for like 3000 or something. So I want, once I get to that amount saved on my sobriety tracker, I want to do a solo trip, museum and architecture trip to, to Amsterdam. That's just a fun, fun bucket list thing that kind of makes it, I mean, I think it's fun to have sobriety goals, you know, but like, oh, I saved this much money. I can do treat myself to this. And it kind of gives it a little bit of a fun gold star thing. But I also bucket list is just, I want to be I want to remember my kids' whole childhood. I mean, it goes really fast. You know, they're already 10 and 7, and I just want to be present for that and not not try to numb out the uncomfortable bits. So that's not really a bucket list, but that's like a, a more of a, a goal. Both pretty cool goals. And if you do make it to Amsterdam, uh, I highly encourage you. I've done this, I think it's six countries, is to go to an AA meeting in a different country. It's really I cool. I mean, you walk in and oh, yeah. they'll probably be speaking Dutch, I think, but uh, mm-hmm. they, they speak very good English. I wouldn't be surprised if they the entire do. meeting goes to English just for you. And you're instantly going to have oh, 5, God. 10, 20 new friends. You're going to feel right at home. It's one of the coolest things that I've done while traveling is sometimes they're hard to find. But uh, once you get in that room, you'll just you walk in and like this ease just lifts off your shoulder. You just feel at home. It's It's really cool. That's so great. Yeah, I've done it a little bit when I've traveled. Like, it was in Palm Springs on my solo trip, and I found an AA meeting there, which is a totally different flavor than an AA meeting here on the east side of Los Angeles. So it's like a way to kind of tap into, like, a little subculture in every every place you go. I love that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a way we can leverage our sobriety. I mean, we've gone through a lot of pain Mm -hmm. and bullshit to get to the point we're at now. That when I go to a new city, yeah, I'm going to use this to my advantage and say, hey, I'm going to go to a meeting and, and get 20 instant friends. It's it's awesome. I love it. It's so much fun. And yeah, I highly recommend that. And, and Carrie, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer mm-hmm. these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I am ready. All righty. <laughs> Number one, Carrie, what was your worst memory from drinking? Ugh, this one's so embarrassing. Um, it was actually Pre, I got married, and also I had so many red flags I should have followed way before, but I went to a fancy dinner party. This is when I lived in New York City at a friend's place in Brooklyn. It was a literary dinner party where every table discussed a different book, and I drank a lot of wine too fast and ended up just kind of ghosting the party. I I left without telling any of my friends because I was embarrassed. I was so hammered. Somehow made my way to the subway and was taking the subway back into the city, the next thing I kind of remember is I was standing in the subway and a lady with a, I just remember her eyes looking like she felt so bad for me, handed me a plastic bag because I was throwing up. I'd been so much. I'd kind of blocked out a little bit and came to just throwing up on myself mm. on the subway. And a beautiful outfit. I was newly engaged and then had to get off the subway covered in throw up and, and go back to my apartment and wonder how 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 do these two images go together how, how does this life connect with the person i'm trying to be no kidding and we that's one of my worst memories yeah 
And Carrie, we've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating the gig might be up? The oh shit moment was actually when my husband met me at a wine tasting in our neighborhood that I met friends at. And he came to meet me after I'd been there for not long. And he pulled me aside and said, maybe you should stop drinking. You're starting to swear in words. Mm. And I knew if somebody else was noticing, somebody that was so close to me was concerned and I was slurring my words and not even noticing it, that that's when I knew the gig might be up. And with 12 days of sobriety, Carrie, what's your plan moving forward? My plan moving forward is to keep up with the morning meditation. It's been so helpful. And to go to more AA meetings. I know, you know, some people love them. Some people hate them that listen to the podcast. Some people haven't tried them, but I, I, I feel in my gut that it's going to be a good thing to me for me. And I might try the, the 30 meetings in 30 days. And the other thing I would like to do is find a sponsor and work through the steps. It's just something I've never done. And I'm a little scared about finding a sponsor, but that's, that's my plan. Awesome. That sounds like a great plan. And what's your favorite resource? You can list a couple. What's your favorite resource in recovery? I love the podcast, as I said, and I really have enjoyed reading recovery memoirs. I'm reading Lit right now. I read Blackout by Sarah Hapola. There's, I have a series of them next to the side of my bed. I really like reading other people's stories of, of addiction and making it through to the other side. Have you kind of read the, the Carolyn Knapp book, Drink, uh, Love Story, Drinking, something like that? Yeah, that's what I'm reading right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Because yeah, that's yeah, right. but, book club yeah. book. Oh, that's right. I, yeah, I'm going to make a book club. The times are always weird. But yeah, that is. Okay, I'm reading that. I'm almost done with that one. Yeah, I'm like 60 Fantastic. pages in. It's, it's really good. It, it, I really relate to it. Some of her descriptions of drinking. And also that she was a drinking mother is, you know, something I really relate to with that. And Carrie, in regards favorite. to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I've ever received is to follow the drink to the end. I do get sometimes have that, you know, get a little seduced the beautiful glass with beautiful bubbly in it and think how nice it'd be to drink that glass. All I have to do is follow it to the end, which is usually ends up with me throwing up in a terrible hangover. And it's just not worth it anymore. Follow the drink, play the tape forward, visualize mm-hmm. what will really happen when we start drinking. Are we going to stop at just one? Uh, probably not. That's never happened for me. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery or are thinking about taking this journey? I think if anyone's thinking about taking the journey, just do it. Start today. Don't wait till after your birthday or after that next big work party. Just start today. Sometimes it's a start and stop journey, but you learn something all along the way. And I feel like you eventually find, I doubt anybody is like, you know what? It's better for me to just keep up with this drinking life. If you're already thinking about it and worrying about it, it's probably going to be more beneficial for you to stop and find the joys of sobriety because there's so, so many of them. I just, like I said, the main, just waking up without hangovers, that's worth, that's worth it all for me. And before we depart, Carrie, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic if one. You might be an alcoholic if you open a bottle of wine, pour yourself two glasses, and then pour out the rest of the wine so that you'll limit yourself to those two glasses. However, after those two glasses, you end up going to the liquor store, buying a whole other bottle, and drinking that whole thing. <laughs> Insanity. It truly, truly is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Carrie, thank you so much for joining us. This is a great way to start my day. Thanks for being part of my sobriety. Thank you so much for having me on, Paul. It was super fun. 21 out of 25 spots have been filled for the Recovery Elevator yearly retreat. This year, we're going down to Peru. We're going to do the Inca Trail. We're going to discover Machu Picchu. We're also going to be doing some volunteer work with the nonprofit group Peruvian Hearts. And what better way to check this bucket list travel experience off in your life than to do it with other like-minded individuals. The dates are October 13th to October 23rd. Go to recoveryelevator.com for more information. And before we depart, I want to share a cool experience that I had the other day. Somehow, miraculously, I got player of the game on my rec hockey team. We have a tradition that you're supposed to accept the trophy, which has a shot glass conveniently super glued to the top. So you take a shot of whiskey, give a little speech, and go on your merry way. So the person was saying, I'd like to dedicate the player of the game trophy to Paul Churchill. I'm sitting there untying my skates and I go, oh shit. I've learned that planets don't fall out of orbit when I come out as somebody who doesn't drink. That just doesn't happen. 
People don't really care if Paul Churchill drinks or not. But this situation could be absolutely terrifying and almost like invoke a relapse for some people. This is my first year on the team. I don't know these guys very well. In fact, only one or two of them know I don't drink. So there I was, stuck. The spotlight on me. There was no way of getting out of this. I was either A, going to have to take the shot, or B, say this. Hey guys, I'm honored to be player of the game. Thank you so much. I don't drink, so if anybody else would like this shot, please feel free. Within a second, somebody took the shot. And another part of the tradition is I'm supposed to guard the trophy and the bottle of whiskey. And the next game, I can pass out the player of the game trophy. So a guy took a shot, and then another guy goes, Hey, Paul, let me. Uh, how about I take that bottle for you? So while I was continuing to change out of my hockey gear, I said, Hey, do you, do you know somebody in recovery? And he's like, Yeah, kind of. But I, I, I also understand that you know somebody in recovery, perhaps an alcoholic, if you are or not, you know, giving them a bottle of whiskey in their hockey bag to have for a week is probably not the best idea. So I, I thought I would take it for you. And gosh, it was just the coolest feeling. And I had some other conversations with some other people on the team after that in the locker room. It was, it was just an awesome experience. So if you're ever put in a situation like that, the best answer is I don't drink. And again, the most badass thing about me and the most badass thing about you, the listener, is we don't drink. Okay, recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. <laughs>